This is Bigger Questions with your host, Robert Martin. Welcome to Bigger Questions. Today's big question, do religion and football mix? Now, we usually record Bigger Questions before a live audience in the city of Melbourne, but instead today I'm in the suburbs of Melbourne for a special recording. Today I'm with John Boyers, the chaplain of Manchester United Football Club. John was a Baptist minister who has been involved in sports chaplaincy for almost 40 years. He's now retired from full-time work with Sports Chaplaincy UK and he's visiting Australia in partnership with Sports Chaplaincy Australia. And he joins me now. Welcome, John. Thanks very much. Good to be here. John, you're the chaplain to one of the world's largest sporting teams. How did that come about? What happened? Uh, they asked me. <laughs> <laughs> well, how did you get an invitation to Manchester United to be their chaplain? Uh, I'd been uh, chaplain at Watford from 1977 yep. because Watford rose so very quickly and rapidly people were interested in what was happening at Watford right? Uh, and as a consequence I was asked by I don't know half a dozen clubs could I go and explain what the chaplaincy role was at Watford and how that helped the club right? and Manchester United asked the same and I did the same for them but in 87 in the middle of that conversation at Old Trafford they said if we paid you X thousand pounds would you come up here and do for us full-time what you're doing for Watford part-time as a volunteer? And I explained to them that uh, as a Christian minister, you're not tempted by money. You really are driven by what God wants. Mm -hmm. uh, so I said I needed to pray and ask God about that and may also need to talk to my wife about that. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, they said, what's your gut reaction? I said, my gut reaction is definitely no because of two things. Uh, I'm now senior minister in the church where I work. I've got an assistant who in a month's time is leaving me. If I left, that takes the two key leaders away from the church uh, at a moment where the church is growing and we're seeing people come to faith and everything seems to be very much blessed of God. It just seems a strange time, an incongruent time to leave. The, the other factor that I said to them was no other club would pay a full-time chaplain. And it was a better deal than Baptist pastors. <laughs> I said no other club would pay a full-time chaplain. And because Manchester United are important and significant, mm. the, the model that you have needs to be a model that is reproducible. It can be replicated elsewhere. At, at yes. smaller clubs. Mm. So I felt a full-time chaplaincy model then was not appropriate. And I came back to them and said, no, I, I don't think it's the time to come. Uh, and I, I do know a guy who is a pastor in the greater Manchester area who's an ex-England athlete, and I think he could do the job for you mm. on a voluntary basis. So I, I got that guy involved. But then you were eventually at Manchester United. Yeah, they though, came so. back to me because the guy who I got involved in 1987 left for a church in Canada, and the club came back to me and said, look, you chatted five years ago about chaplaincy. Can you come again mm. and talk to us? Uh, but when I went there, they said, look, we want you to do it. Mm. Uh, and, and we have checked on your background and we know you're no longer a pastor in a church. <laughs> they said, we know now you work for a registered charity that develops chaplaincy in sport. So it makes no difference whether you're based in Watford or based in Manchester. We remember what you said last time. We, you felt uh, a part-time volunteer model was good. So what we're asking you to do, John, is to come up here and be chaplain at Manchester United and work part-time, as you do at Watford, one and a half days a week, uh, and do so as a volunteer. 
so that the model that you talked about last time, we can have that here, will you mm. please come? And again, I said, I've got to pray and see about it. But we felt God very much said, now is the time. This is the time to go. Yeah. yeah. And it has been a good decision? It has, but it was a tough decision mm. because it was a big step of faith that uh, we said, look, if God is in charge of this, it will work out. And, and it did. Now, you were appointed chaplain at Watford in 1977, just before they went through a golden period in their history. And then you were appointed at Manchester United as chaplain in 1992, just before Sir Alex Ferguson uh, went on to become the most successful manager in English football history. So do clubs appoint chaplains as lucky charms, just to, to seek divine assistance, perhaps? I hope not. Right. I really do. Some people would say that that might be coincidence. Uh, maybe God has taken me into clubs at significant times because the rise of Watford, as I'd said earlier, very much focused people's attention on what is happening at Watford. And it wasn't just chaplaincy. Mm. It was the whole idea of involvement with the community. It was the idea of having uh, a creche, a family enclosure. And a lot of this was, was part of what Graham Taylor was doing at Watford uh, in the uh, 1970s, late 70s and 1980s. Mm. Uh, and people were interested in the whole of it. Mm. And chaplaincy certainly is, is not there as a lucky charm. Chaplaincy is there to offer something concrete and helpful and useful and worthwhile to the club. Uh, in fact, Graham Taylor at Watford said, we'll give it a go for a year and see what people make of it. And after 12 months, he said to me, this is going very well. People think it is very helpful. Can you do it for another year? We did it for a second year. And at the end of the second year, he said, look, this is going so well. Can we make it permanent? I'm happy. We've got a club doctor. Uh, we've got a club uh, dentist. We can have a club chaplain mm. in an official capacity. So, so the club found value in it. Mm. And I think they found value in it because... Uh, you were there to help people through crisis and difficulty. Well, maybe just explain a little bit about what sports chaplains actually okay. do. If, if it went well, what was well? What was happening that made it worthwhile for the club? I, I didn't know much at all about sports chaplaincy. Mm -hmm. uh, what I chatted to Graham Taylor about was that uh, life brings problems and difficulties. Would it not be helpful to have someone who can be supportive of all staff, not just players? Uh, when those problems and difficulties come. And you understand that life does bring crises. Mm. And uh, that the chaplain is there to help people through that. Mm -hmm. and, and sometimes people need some religious input. Um, so we mentioned on Facebook that we were coming to meet you today and people submitted a few questions for us. And here's one from Brian who asks, given the intense scrutiny and criticisms the players receive, do players get affected by this chatter? Uh, Brian should ask the players, shouldn't he? <laughs> you can't ask me, do players get affected by all the chatter? Uh, I guess you and I sitting here around this table would say, well, we think they would. Right. Because if you constantly hear negative stuff about you, it's going uh, it, to have an impact. But whether players get affected by criticism that they get or whether referees get affected by it, match of the day in England, mm. you know, they now run through the decisions referees make and are vitriolic sometimes mm. in their criticism. How can he give that when it should have been this? It was obvious that, you mm, know. Mm. I would guess they would be affected mm. by it, but whether they are or not, you've got to ask the people themselves. <laughs> I can't answer for them. Is this something that in your role as chaplain, you help players through these sort of things? Sometimes I, I, I make a comment. I thought you were very unfairly treated by the media at the weekend, I'm 
sorry that they picked on you. I didn't think that was a, a fair comment. You know, sometimes you would say that, but not a lot more than that. Mm. Because I, th- I think the things that happen on the pitch and in a game are more to do with the coaches and the management mm. than the chaplain. Yeah. Uh, if coaches and management say to me, could you have a word with so-and-so? Because I think he's quite affected by what happened at the weekend on the game. Yes, I would. But you have to be very careful about making your own initiative because mm. people think, he's a chaplain, I'm the coach. Why is he involving himself mm. on what happens on the pitch? It, 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 it's, it's very interesting mm. to know where and how you can work. And, and different managers may need uh, you to work differently. Just because you've worked in a certain way with one coach or manager doesn't mean that the next manager or coach is going to want you to work in exactly the same yeah. way. I, I've, I've helped chaplains who have said, I used to go into the changing room before the game and, and the new manager has come in and he has banned me from going in the changing room. What do I do? I said, don't go in the changing room. Mm. He's a manager. Mm. Do what he says. You're there to help him, not there be a problem to him. Mm. So then do you have to be careful then to work out how you don't interfere with the coaching program, the staff or the manager? I always would say to a new manager, this is what I've done in the past. Uh, I, I'm here to help you. So if I do anything that you prefer me not to do or if there's something you want me to do that I'm not doing, please tell me, I'll try and help you. Uh, it's, it's just clarifying how you operate. But you don't ever offer a coaching advice. The no, players, I don't. Really. That's, that's, that's beyond the role of a chaplain. Absolutely. You, you're, you're there to providers. offer pastoral and spiritual help. Yeah. Sadly, there are some chaplains who may think they can offer on-field advice, <laughs> which is a real no-no. Right. And I know of one chaplain in England who was shown the door at his club because he asked a manager why he made a substitute decision that he did. <laughs> and wouldn't it have been better to do the other, you know? <laughs> Yeah. But people can get sucked into yeah. this, this world of football. So how do you avoid doing that? Uh, I just don't do it. Right. I just don't do it. I, I'm not so passionately involved that uh, you, you think, oh, manager, that was a hopeless. Uh, uh, equally, oh, player. That, you know, players get asked by fans, you know, when you beat the man on the outside, why didn't you cross it straight <laughs> away? Why did you check back and then knock it in and actually you gave time? A fan may ask that question. Yeah. But the question from a chaplain is, how's your wife getting on with the young baby? Is it sleeping well? You know? Yep. It's just a different focus. You really need to be interested in them as people rather than as performers on a football pitch. Now, another question from Facebook, this time from Roger, who acknowledges that Premier League footballers earn a lot of money how do you support and help young professional footballers who are incredibly wealthy? I, I do some life skills yep. work with the youngest players and I talk about coping with success and coping with failure. So what does that involve with your life skills? Well, we talk about a whole range of things like friendship, bullying, uh, prejudice, as I say, coping with success, coping with failure, sexual ethics maybe, privilege and responsibility those sort of issues and it's not this is how you should live and this is how you must behave it's it's often questions if this is happening or if that's going on or if you were in this situation what would you do how would you cope with it so it's discussion and it's discussion for two reasons it's discussion so that you make them think of some of the wider issues of life but it's also discussion 
time with them so they get to know you mm. because as they grow up they need to know the rev is okay he's there and he will help us and he's not there for any other reason than to support and help us and mm. so you build a rapport that in the months and years to come might be helpful when they have got some sort of crisis to come mm. uh but in terms of the question about money, I always say to the lads, most of people who start in football uh, will actually drop out. You stand a very good chance of getting a life in football because you're with Manchester United, therefore you must have some degree of skill. But you've got to work very hard to make it in football and you've got to work very hard to make it at Manchester United. But you've got two or three years now as academy players uh, don't waste your opportunities. That's my first line. And then I talk about if you do get a, a living in football, the chances are some of you could make very good money and some of you may make exceptionally good money. Uh, and if you do, think about that. Don't waste it. Be wise what you do with it. And maybe think of the less fortunate. And I would quote to them one of our former players who set up a charity and gave one-tenth of his monthly income. And interestingly, he wasn't a Christian guy, this guy. But he gave a tenth of his income to this charity, which drilled wells in African and Indian villages to provide water for people who had no source of clean water. And I said it only took 10% of his monthly income. But for the people in Africa and India that he helped, it was in a huge difference. Mm. So think about what you could do by giving, you know, if, if you're fortunate and you earn £50,000 a week, think about what you could do if you gave £5,000 a week to a worthy charity, a worthy need around the world. So I, I would encourage them to think about using their money altruistically for mm. the good of others mm. rather than just for themselves. Now, on an online football fan forum, an article about chaplains in sport was posted and some fans expressed unease at the place of chaplains in sport. One said, I'm not at all comfortable with it. Religion and football do not mix. So what do you make of this? Do religion and football mix? It depends what your attitude is, doesn't it, really? Mm -hmm. uh, I think there is a, a lot in the British secular agenda that would seek to take the faith element out of life because they have a secularist agenda. Yeah. <laughs> the truth is in England, uh, the worth of chaplaincy has been acknowledged and emphasised and supported by all of the major football bodies. So I'm talking about the Football Association, the Premier League, the Football League, the League Managers Association, the Professional Footballers Association, that they are affirming the value of chaplaincy. Mm. Because in England, the, the chaplains aren't there as, as Bible bashers. They're there as people who are trained to offer pastoral and spiritual support. Uh, they don't think they have the answer to every question, but they are a bit like the doctor who is a GP. He's a generalist. Mm and you have confidence in your generalist who at times acknowledges he needs to pass you on to a specialist. Mm. And so with the football chaplain. Uh, we are generalists uh, and we talk to a lot of people, not just players, other staff as well, and we help and support and we're around and available. We're, we're, we're contactable day to day, week to week. 
But if someone comes to me with a major, major issue that I've got no qualification to deal with, no experience to deal with, then I would tell them that and, and say, look, I can find you someone who can help you. So why, why do you specifically need chaplains and not maybe a secular person with professional qualifications? We need chaplains because sometimes the issues that we deal with are spiritual issues. Right. People want us to pray, for instance. I've been to see people in hospital, uh, players and non-players, who have faced serious injury or significant operations. And I said, look, would you like me to pray for you or not? And most people say, yes, Rev, please pray for me. Mm. Uh, and then I would say, well, would you like me to pray here before I go or would you like me to pray when I get back home in my office? And I'm amazed that I think about 90% of the people I ask that question say, look, could you pray here and now? Hmm. Uh, and just before we came to Australia, I popped in to see people at our training ground and one guy in one of the offices followed me out as I left and he said, Rev, uh, my grandmother is, is about to die. We've been told it's just a matter of days. But uh, would you pray for her? Would you pray for my family? Now, a trained secular guy couldn't do that. Mm. You know, I think there are times in life where a chaplain offers something more than a social worker. Now, you've also been chaplain at the Olympic Games, and in foundational documents of the Olympics is provision for the spiritual needs of athletes. So what are the spiritual needs of athletes? Well, I, th I think Baron de Corbetin, who, who pulled all the documents together, uh, wanted to ensure that the games, which were a physical test, were not to be simply a physical test. Uh, he wanted them to be something that uh, added another dimension. And whether you agree with it or not, uh, I think humanity has, has got five dimensions. Uh, we are social people, mm -hmm. so we like friends. We are physical people, so we've got certain physical needs, like food. Mm. Uh, we are intellectual people, we've got minds and we think. We are emotional people, we're sad or we're angry or we're happy. But we're also spiritual people. And I think there is a spiritual dimension in life uh, that not everybody acknowledges, but uh, that dimension is significant. Uh, and it, I suppose it includes coping with guilt, coping with disappointment, coping with joy, uh, thinking beyond the now, what is wholeness, you know? Mm, mm. Uh, and, and I believe that until that f spiritual dimension is, is, is properly filled uh, and enlivened, then we are not the whole people that God wants us to be. Mm. But a secularist would challenge what I've just said. That's... <laughs> That's right. Because we have a different point of view. That's right, yeah. And I respect some, their point of view. I hope they respect our point of view. But I suppose but for some athletes, though, regardless of what the secularists think, they still have spiritual desires, don't they? And yeah. so it would be unfair to the spiritual well-being of players who that's not catered for. I, I remember one incident uh, when I was chaplain at Watford. We, uh, we were playing at Queen's Park Rangers on what was then their uh, all-weather pitch, their artificial pitch. And one of our players who'd been injured for a long time with a pretty serious knee injury uh, was coming back to start his first game. 
And I happened to be there and he saw me at the ground and said, can you come in the changing room? Uh, I'd like you to pray for me. And I went in the changing room and uh, he said, look, I am a bit worried because it's an artificial pitch and I don't know how my knee's going to hold up. Will you just pray for me? So we made our way to the back of the changing room near some showers. And uh, I just prayed that he would know the peace and presence of God. You know, and I think I think there are times when when athletes acknowledge that although they can do all that they can, there's something out there beyond them that that may be helpful. Mm. Legendary Liverpool manager Bill Shankly once said, "Some people think football is a matter of life and death. I don't like that attitude. I can assure them it is much more serious than that." What do you make of that? Uh, football is not more important than life and death. Period. <laughs> What's more important than football? Faith. Mm-hmm. The trouble is that uh, I, I see fans for whom football is their religion. Mm. Uh, and there are many similarities. You know, the home game, the away game is a pilgrimage, really. Uh, you go to the great cathedral, don't you? Yes. To, to, to see the event happening. And in the cathedral, there is the friendship, fellowship maybe, the camaraderie of fans that come together every week or every two weeks and they know each other and how's your granddad getting on and has your daughter had the baby? You know, there's that rapport. Mm. Uh, And in church, you might make your offerings. Well, it costs money to buy your pie at half time and it costs (laughs) money to buy your ticket and it (laughs) costs money to buy your program. You know, there's a huge financial outlay. Mm. Uh, that some of these fans make. There's, there's all that, the, the commitment that is involved. There's so much there that's sort of power. The singing, you know, you sing in church. Where else do blokes sing? Mm. They sing at football matches. <laughs> you know, it's like worship. There's only one David Beckham or whatever. Mm. But there is something significant uh, about faith that, that says it's different to the religion of football. Because football doesn't tell you how to cope with one of the great facts of life, that life doesn't, on this earth as we know it, doesn't go on forever, mm. that we all die. Football doesn't tell you how to deal with the issue of, uh, of guilt and the need for forgiveness. Football doesn't tell you how to find lasting and eternal purpose in life. Football doesn't tell you how to find peace in your heart. Uh, Although there's the trappings of religion about football. It ultimately doesn't satisfy. It doesn't satisfy. Mm -hmm. Now, John, you're a Christian believer. What convinced you to become a Christian believer? The the story of of other people when I was a student in Nottingham. I was brought up to go to church and Sunday school, so I always had a sense that up there was God. Mm. Uh, But I met, as a student in Nottingham, people in the Christian Union Uh, for whom God seemed very real and personal in a way that I didn't know. And that really set me thinking. And they passed me little books and explanations of the gospel. And I thought, well, I know the stories, but I've never turned the switch. Right. (laughs) I've never put the plug in the socket, you know. So I remember praying a prayer that sought God's grace and forgiveness, uh, expressing belief that through Jesus that would come and and asking God to uh, come to me and change my life and make me what he needed me to be. Mm. And there were no uh, heavenly choirs or 
lights filling the room, but I knew that I was different. At that moment? Over the next three or four weeks. Mm. But the thing that really helped you persuade you, I suppose, was you saw the distinctiveness and the difference. I saw the difference in other people. Mm. I thought they've got something that I haven't, and either uh, they're nutters, you know, (laughs) or this is real and uh, uh, I'm missing out. Mm. As part of Bigger Questions, we reflect on a part of the Bible which resonates with the experience of our guest. And today we reflect on a passage from the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew is one of the four biographies of Jesus' life that we have. And Matthew 5, 14 to 16 says, You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. So, John, what do you make of this passage? Uh, I think it's a good passage uh, for chaplains, really. Yeah, how so? I think the passage says, uh, let your light shine. Mm-hmm. You know, I could sing you a Negro spiritual at that sure. point. <laughs> okay, <Please> don't. <laughs> <laughs> it, would, it would ruin your listening figures, I'm sure. <laughs> But but we we have to let our light shine, haven't we? I mean that 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 God God has done stuff in us and with us, not simply for us, but so that His truth and His reality will reach the wider world. Mm. And uh, He's called us to do good deeds, so people will honor Him through the deeds of His followers. You mm. know. So I, 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 I think, I think that, that passage from Matthew is, is very significant. Mm. I just hope that Christians can live out their life, whether it be as a chaplain in a football club or a teacher in a school or a worker in a factory or a guy in an office that makes people think something different about that. Mm. So what does it mean then that believer is the light of the world? What does light do? It dispels darkness. Mm-hmm. What does light do? It makes clear the way that uh, you walk. We, we are there to take the darkness out of the world and we are there to illuminate the world, to show the world, to make clear in the world the, the things of God, perhaps. Mm. I suppose this passage also rele- is relevant to your own life. You saw the light, perhaps, mm-hmm. in others and responded. Yeah. yeah, 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 I would say that. And then chaplains are also being lights in their clubs as well. Is that, that yeah, yeah. That's the purpose of chaplains yeah, yeah. in many ways, for that they may do good things, good deeds? Yeah, yeah. So, John, final thoughts. Do religion and football mix? Yeah, I think they do. I think they do, uh, not from my point of view as a Christian minister working as a chaplain, but from the point of view of many of the football authorities in the UK that are saying we think chaplaincy is a good thing. Some of them are even putting money into it to ensure that uh, the chaplaincy program will be strengthened and growing. So uh, even some of these secular footballing authorities acknowledge that chaplaincy is a good thing and uh, helps football. Let me leave you with the Bible's reflection on the big question, do religion and football mix? From Matthew 5, 14 to 16. You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Look forward to you joining us next time for Bigger Questions. Thank you to our guest today, John Boyers. 
Well, thanks for listening to Bigger Questions. I love bringing you bigger questions each week here through this podcast. And if you're ever in the city of Melbourne, we uh, do the live recordings every second Wednesday. We have some great conversations lined up for the second half of this year. So it'd be great if you could come along and be part of the live audience and ask your questions and explore the big questions at those shows. So check the website, biggerquestions.org, for more information. And also to help us to cover the costs of this podcast, we have set up a, a Patreon page which uh, people can support the show, even for as little as $1, US dollar, $1 a podcast. Um, we've had a number of new patrons come on board in the last couple of months, and I just want to say a bit of a shout-out and say thanks to them very much, particularly to Alan, Rebecca, Travis, James, and Mark. Uh, it's been fantastic to see your support, so thank you much, very much for your support of this podcast and this show. Uh, if you'd like to support the show, then just head over to uh, patreon.com slash bigger questions and you can support the show by as little as a US $1 a podcast. It's in US dollars, that's how it's set up, but you can set how much you'd like to give to help us uh, keep giving you uh, bigger questions. So thanks for listening and look forward to uh, bringing you another bigger question next time. So thanks a lot.